0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Well, we made it through the holidays, did we not? I heard some Amen. It's been a busy time, I'm sure, for all, as it has been for us, staff here at the cathedral. We're so glad that you've made it to the other side with us. And now we're here at Epiphany, and after all the activity and wonderful celebrations that we've enjoyed together, it's easy to miss this season, and I think many have said before me that perhaps Epiphany is the most neglected season of the church calendar. Yeah, I've heard of Christmas, Advent, Easter, Lent, but what's Epiphany? Well, this Sunday we happen to have the day of Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany, land on a Sunday. So we're celebrating this first week of Epiphany with the readings of the wise men, the Magi. Now this is one of the most celebrated stories of the Bible and of the early Christian communities. We know this because church fathers commented on this Gospel passage in Matthew 2 quite a bit. We also know it because there are actually depictions of the Magi in the tombs of some of the early Christians. They call them the catacombs. And only some of the most memorable and precious uh, images were inscribed there in the catacombs, and the Magi are all over there. For us, though, it just seems like a quaint Story on a Christmas card. Why? Why the gap? Why the difference? We have to remember the great chasm between the Jews, God's people, God's chosen people, and the Gentiles, those outside of God's promises before Christ on the other side of Christmas, right? We're on this side of Christ's coming. And we don't appreciate this great gap that's been closed for us. The epiphany to the Magi of God's Christ, His salvation to all the world, was so important because it says once you were on the outside, but now you're on the inside. You've been brought near. You talk to recent immigrants, or you talk to maybe forebears, all of us at one time immigrated to this country, and for them the Statue of Liberty is an amazing symbol. It speaks of hope, of welcome, of new life. For us second, third, fourth, maybe more generations of Americans, we appreciate it, don't get us wrong. But do we rejoice exceedingly with great joy when we see the Statue of Liberty? The entrance of the Gentiles into the family of the one true God is like that. Like a recent immigrant who came from a war-torn country who says, I'm, I'm home. I've made it to a, a place that I can call home. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 3, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. How? Through Christ Jesus, through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Now, I don't have to remind you this, but as Christians, you might get tired of talking about the death of Christ. When we're celebrating the birth of Christ. Maybe outsiders say, you, got, you Christians are always so gory and, and uh, you know, just dark talking about the death of Christ. But you can't understand the birth of Christ, His appearance, His entrance into the world without knowing why He came to be born. Which was to die a faithful death on our behalf that we might be brought near Paul goes on in Ephesians to say, you've been given access. That's temple. That's worship language. We've been brought into the very throne room of God through the death of Christ. That's why we celebrate his birth. Yes, it was a, it's a beautiful story. And the incredible tenderness of, and um, just power of God becoming flesh is so precious and so beautiful. But it's because of his death that we celebrate his birth. You can't understand his birth without knowing why he came to be born. Well, that's all by way of introduction this morning. That was just a free sermon. We're going to focus, it's so rich, on Matthew 2 briefly. And so I ask you to turn, if you have your own Bibles, to page 807 in the Church Bible, Matthew 2. The story of the Magi. We're going to look at two responses to the kingship, to the coming of Jesus. So here's the bottom line Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, of the world, and of all creation. And he's the king over you and me. So I ask you, how will you respond to his movements in your life? To the inbreaking of God's kingdom into the world and in your life in 2019. and We're going to look at two starkly different responses to God's kingdom in our text. Two responses. The first response is rejection. We can reject or become hardened to God's work in the world in our lives. Look at Matthew 2, verse 2. Magi said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Troubled. This, world, this word is different than surprised, it's different than, hmm, that's thought provoking. He was angry. Now, it's okay to be curious about the work of God and, and ask God questions. What are you up to here, God? I don't quite understand this. This doesn't fit with my plan. Why are you doing this? Curiosity is good. Mary showed it even when the angel announced to her the birth of Christ. But this was different. This was not curiosity. This was an attempt to control and by means of control reject the movements of God. Control is often a sign of our attempts to live apart from God, to live autonomously, auto namas, auto self, namas from the Greek law, a law unto oneself. We value autonomy so much and there's Good in context, when we talk about autonomy in the right context. But when we talk about our relationship with God, autonomy is death. A law unto self leads to death. That's in fact what the first temptation was in the garden. Genesis 3, the serpent says, if you take this fruit, you will be like God. You can be your own God. Autonomos. A law unto yourself. When we experience a difficult circumstance or the surprising inbreaking of God in our lives, our first response, as those marred by sin in the fall, will be control. Wait, this is not what I planned, this is not what I want. And if you're like me, when you're in that mode of control, it's very difficult to pray. I can't pray deeply or consistently when I'm grasping and holding on to control in my life. And that's exactly what Herod displays for us. He grasps to power. He schemes and tries to find a way. Hey, this is a threat to my authority, to my power. Herod's grasping is the opposite of the way of Christ. Again, what does Paul say? That in Christ, that Christ, though he was in the form of God, this is Philippians 2, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on human form. So in other words, Jesus, though he was the eternal Son of God, did not try to leverage his power as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but emptied himself. Christ displays for us the true way of God and and actually the true way of the universe of love, a self-emptying, a becoming vulnerable and weak in humanity and dying on a cross for us, never losing his divinity, by the way, but emptying for us his power, that we, by his wealth and abundance, might become rich. So Herod rejected the movement of God and his kingdom. Now, many of us may not consciously reject God's kingdom, and I would say most of you here are probably not doing that. But if you're like me, you've heard the gospel many times and you can become hardened to it. So instead of a conscious rejection, Your heart is just calloused over. You don't hear the glorious good news for what it is. Instead of being troubled then, like Herod, we respond with hearts maybe indifferent or bored or even cynical. Notice the scribes and the chief priests and their response in this passage. They knew the prophecy. Herod asked them, hey, where's the Christ supposed to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and they quote, They knew the truth, but they didn't act on it. Did you know that Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem? The scribes, the, the chief priests, they didn't go to the trouble to make the journey. To go see about this Christ. Now, Herod, again, in the story, he, he goes secretly, and so maybe they were suppressed from doing so. But it says, not just Herod, but all Jerusalem was troubled. They heard about this rumor that the Christ might be born. Did any of them travel to go see them, see him? When you've been beaten down by life, when you've had disappointments, it's hard to respond with trust and faith, isn't it? Now, there were many false messiahs during this time. This was a feverish time in the, in the history of Israel. And there were some who claimed to be messiah who turned out to be false messiahs and led people astray. So perhaps the scribes and the chief priests said, ah, It's just another false alarm. I'm not going to trust in God's in-breaking kingdom here. And their hearts were hardened to God's work. So I ask you, where, where has your heart grown cynical? In this time. Where have you heard the good news and heard it maybe in others that God would work in their lives, but you just say, you know what? I've been disappointed too many times. I'm not going to trust. And so we reject God's movement, God's kingdom in our life. Dr. S.M. Lockridge African-American preacher who I won't do justice to in terms of his power and cadence and pathos, explains this well. He basically says, you know, in the West, we're accustomed to presidents and not kings. We're used to being able to impeach our leaders. But if you're from a Middle Eastern country, the, the king or the, the royal is a fact of life. And you don't just say, "Huh, eh, I'll, I'll do what I want, when I want. He says this about Jesus. In a great poem, I invite you to look it up called, That's My King. It says, My king was born king. He always has been and he always will be. He had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. The heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Do you know him? And he responds, he asks after each paragraph, Do you know that king? Because that's the king we serve. And so I invite you to respond to his inbreaking in your life. So the first way of response was rejection, and now briefly the second way we'll look at this morning and how to respond to God's inbreaking is rejoicing and resting. Rejoicing and resting. Let's look at Matthew two ten. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You might say, Colin, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to rejoice at God's work in my life. And maybe that sounds cheesy or or trite. But I want to ask you seriously, when was the last time you deeply rejoiced? You savored the work of God in the world and in your life. Did you notice the emphasis of that verse? Not just rejoice, not just rejoice with joy, not just rejoice with great joy, but rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Rejoicing in God can be hard when we're fed a steady diet of superficial entertainment. All that stimulation numbs us to the deep movement of the Spirit and prevents us from experiencing true joy. You're like me, you have seasons of discouragement and you maybe get too focused on the things, the details in your life and what's going wrong in your life specifically. And, or maybe what's not all it could be. But can you get out of that for a moment? Can I get out of the navel gazing for a moment? And look up and rejoice with great joy in God's kingdom, in a truth that's bigger than ourselves, in a story that's much larger than your story and my story, but yet a story that we're brought into? Can you rejoice in the larger story of God's kingdom? What is your greatest aim in life? What is your greatest ambition? What's the final destination you're traveling to? Y'all, it's a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline to set our hope, to set our heart on God's kingdom. The new Jerusalem, our highest joy. But that's faith. Placing value on Christ above all else. Look how the Magi did this. How they embodied faith. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This wasn't, like I said, a polite bow, like we do at times on a Christmas card. This was forehead to the ground full prostration you know the hymn all hail the power of Jesus name let angels prostrate fall this was an anticipation of the creation at God's coming worshiping the one true God and these Gentiles are embodying that faith that worship and then what do they do they opening their treasures offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I think that's a great picture of faith. Yes, faith is belief, but it's an active word. It's a verb. Faith is not just an idea, a noun. It's a self-offering. It's saying, in response to your great offering, you're pouring out of your love for us in this incarnation on the cross, I'm offering you myself, my life. Faith as self-offering in response to the greatest offering of all time. So the Magi rejoiced, and finally they rested. Look at this curious verse, verse 9. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, I know this is the star, but isn't it like God to show us that his creation, the stars, the moon, his created things would respond in obedience before his sinful fallen creatures? The very star itself rested above the Christ child. And that's the hardest thing to do these days, is it not? Simply to rest. In another's presence, much less the presence of Almighty God. So let's take our cues from creation. All creation listens to the voice of God, but do His creatures. That's why we still observe and receive the gift of Sabbath. God said, I work six days and I've rested on the seventh. Are you more powerful and wise than than I am? that you don't feel like you have to rest either. God knows that there's more work to be done than there is time to do it, right? And yet God invites us to enter in to Sabbath. God calls us to rest in his presence. What does John 15:5 say? Jesus says, "I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, whoever rests, remains. In me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to be productive for God, you need to rest in his presence. Listen to the connection between rejoicing and resting. In Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, what? Rejoice. And this is good for us anxious moderns to hear. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. Rest. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're called to rejoice in the movement of God, the inbreaking of his kingdom in Christ, and the surprising movement of God in our life. Maybe God's going to surprise you this year. Are you ready to receive it? Are you ready to respond to it with rejoicing and with resting? May this epiphany be a season for you of rejoicing, of deep rejoicing at God's work in your life and resting in his life-giving presence.